you're listening to the Primary Medicine Podcast with Kevin and Dimitri, bringing you the best in primary care CME that you can use in your everyday practice. Welcome back to the Primary Medicine Podcast. My name is Dr. Dimitri. I'm a family doctor with a practice in in Ottawa and in Gatineau, so Quebec and Ontario. I'm also a faculty lecturer at McGill University. And uh, this is part two of cardiac risk stratification. So in part one, Kevin went through some of the approaches for cardiac risk stratification. Uh, so we talked about stress tests, echoes, so on and so forth. Uh, in part two, we'll go in deeper, deeper into the rabbit hole and talk about specific sensitivities and specificities and some of the flaws and issues with cardiac risk stratification. So Kevin, if you don't mind, maybe you can just quickly summarize what we talked about last time and then go deeper into the rabbit hole and uh, talk about and finish off this this rather uh, lengthy topic okay so let's recap really quickly what we've covered so far is definitions of cardiac risk stratification when to use them when not to use them and we've covered four frontline modalities and their pros and cons to each all right Let's move for, forward and start to apply this to our own practice. So I want you all to reflect on your own practices, whether it's emergency medicine, rural, primary care, and think about who walks in your door with chest pain. Huh. Everybody, right? And so I sort of have these three categories in my head. The first category is the person that has a high pretest probability. So this is the person that probably has coronary artery disease, and I really don't need to do a stress test to prove it, okay? That's the one where the medical student goes, do you think they could be having a heart attack? And I go, that's probably what they're having. This is, you know, here's the classic, a 60-year-old male, smoker, cholesterol, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, who's had two brothers who've had MIs in their 50s. He comes in describing chest heaviness, worse with exertion, relieved with rest, and uh, goes to his jaw and his right shoulder, and he's sweating and clutching his heart, right? Oh, and he hasn't seen his family. And he doesn't like doctors, exactly. And you know, this is the guy that okay. This time he gets lucky, and and his troponins are negative. Um, I'll be shocked. And he goes home on the advice of the cardiologist because I probably wouldn't send him home. I probably insist that he's brought in um, and stressed as an inpatient. We can talk about that a little bit later. So that's that high pretest probability person, right? So. Those are the people that you're almost certain have coronary artery disease or you'd be shocked they didn't. The low pretest probability is that 22-year-old female that walks in and describes pinpoint, localized, right chest pain that's worse with movement. It's not exertional. This young female has no risk factors for coronary artery disease and also no inflammatory bowel disease or other inflammatory states, which in young people can be considered risk factors for coronary artery disease. Bottom line is she's low pretest probability. If you sent her for further cardiac risk stratification, you almost certainly would get something non-diagnostic or a false positive or a true negative. And then the third category of patient that walks through your door is the ones we struggle with. Intermediate pretest probability patients. To go back to my 45-year-old female who presents with central chest burning, not heaviness, not tightness, not squeezing, Radiates the left shoulder, it's positional, it's exertional, it's relieved by rest, but not relieved by nitro. 
uh, you know, risk factor of hypertension, but nothing else, and she's otherwise fairly fit. Uh, what does this mean? And it's a single episode that she's had, right? So she's not no risk, but she's definitely not high risk. So when your patient is obviously got coronary artery disease, the utility of a stress test is probably fairly limited in the sense that it's likely going to tell you what you already knew, like, oh my goodness, this is abnormal or this is bad. Or you're going to get a, a negative test and you're going to go, mm, I don't know if I believe that. And your cardiologists are going to be well in tuned with this, okay? But the bottom line is these people often need further cardiac testing, right? So, you know, maybe they need an angiogram or maybe or something, but they'll often go beyond a simple stress test. When it is obviously not coronary artery disease, like our 22-year-old female with the pinpoint right-sided chest pain that lasts seconds at a time, sending this young woman on for, quote, cardiac risk stratification is probably a form of harm because there is a high likelihood that if this young woman underwent a stress test, she'd have what we call a false positive. So some abnormality on her EKG during her treadmill test and describes ongoing symptoms, and then may end up getting some really aggressive interventions or tests like a MIBI or a CTA or something like that. It's not that you never refer these patients, okay, because we, we live in a world in primary care and emergency medicine, we live in a world of finding needles in haystacks and zebras, all right? So I'm not trying to talk anybody out of finding a zebra here, but not everyone's a zebra. And to sit there and send every single young patient of yours with essentially no risk factors and a very, very benign story is a form of harm to that individual patient if they went on to suffer bad outcomes as a result of radiation or, or pharmacologic stressing or something along those lines, but also um, very costly to the system. And I really, really enjoy the cardiologists I work with out in Alberta because many of them will often take their own history physically and go, you know what? They really just didn't sound like anything to justify a stress test. I'm not doing one. And let's send the patient home. Um, so I appreciate the judicious use of um, a limited resource like stress, like cardiac risk stratification uh, tools. Any thoughts on any of this at all, Dimitri? Yeah, that, that's uh, my cardiologist in Gatma actually end up doing the same thing. They do the risk stratification uh, blood work and only then will they do a stress test actually. Yeah, and the thing is, I'm not going to go ranting on here, but this is the medical profession. You, me, the doctor sitting in front of the patient, taking that careful history, doing that careful physical examination, that is the most useful element in the diagnostic process, excluding pediatric fever in neonates. <laughs> um, uh, digressing, digressing. Um, but, you know, we're, we're not here to simply, we're not a bunch of technicians that simply follow a bunch of algorithms, protocols, checking boxes. You know, you really have to use your clinical gestalt because this is patients' lives here, right? So if you get a negative test, it doesn't mean you just blindly obey it and say, oh, six-year-old guy with bad chest pain and multiple risk factors, oh, your stress test is negative, off you go. No, you have to use your head and you have to appreciate how use the limitations of your tests and also the limitations of your patient population with regards to those tests. So I'm reluctantly going to step into numbers, but before I do that, I'll just reiterate that the patient who's probably best served by cardiac risk stratification is our 45-year-old female 
represented the central chest burning. Yeah, it's positional, but it's also exertional. It's relieved by rest, but not by nitro. And only one risk factor, which is hypertension. That's probably the individual that's most benefited by um, further uh, cardiac risk stratification. But you have to, again, remember that there are limitations here. So I'm going to throw some numbers out. Yikes. But these are some pretest probability numbers of coronary artery disease based on age. So when a patient gives you a very typical story and they're over the age of 40, be it a male or be it a woman, there's a high likelihood that you're dealing with the, the real thing, which is true um, coronary artery disease. If they're giving you an atypical story, males, they're still fairly high. And I even have that reflected in my own practice. Every year, a few times a year, I get a relatively young male who walks in and says, yeah, I'm having chest pain. It's actually better when I walk. Really? And I order a troponin and it comes back positive. And they've had an end stem. So again, your history and physical are not perfect, but they're good. Okay. In women, when they give you an atypical story, it's actually much lower, lower rates, especially in younger ages. Okay. But the bottom line is, is that if you're dealing with a low risk population, so young females or young males and a very atypical story, you have a very low likelihood of having any coronary artery disease when you do further testing. If, however, they're giving you a good story and they're at a higher age, so especially above kind of age, you know, I'd probably say about age 40, age 50, then your likelihood of picking something up on stress testing is higher. Okay, so that's the first general discussion of numbers. And again, I really hate getting into this, especially when um, we're all listening on a podcast. But let's go on to the actual modalities themselves. So which one is better? Which one is worse? Well, from what I've read, these are very hard to compare. So it's very hard to compare stress EKG with stress echo with a MIPI. The bottom line is, is that they're all pretty bad in terms of sensitivity. So they have high miss rates of real disease. So a stress EKG is cited as having a sensitivity of 45 to 61%. Yikes, which means you could be missing half of all cases. And again, this is where it comes down to your good cardiologist who says, yeah, I know your stress test normal, but I don't buy it. Let's do a MIBI. Or let's, you know, send you for a CTA uh, of your coronaries, okay? And again, when you combine tests, especially ones that are dramatically different from one another, you're probably going to increase your yield. I don't know of any studies that have been done where they've taken patients through serial risk stratification uh, techniques, but it would make sense that, like, if, you know, your stress EKG is abnormal, you're not going to do another one. You're probably going to do something like a big gun, like a MIBI scan. And MIBIs um, aren't bad. They're somewhere around, you know, 75 to 90% sensitivity, but again, not perfect. Stress echo, somewhat lower, 70 to 85, somewhere around there. And again, these numbers vary wildly. The specificity is somewhat higher for all of these, which is somewhere around, I'm going to ballpark it around 70 to 90% specific. So if you find something, 
on one of your cardiac risk stratification techniques. It's probably the real deal. So what I'm getting at here is that don't be reassured by a recent normal stress test. And I review these numbers once every couple of years or so in my own practice to inform myself because you can have a patient who had a normal stress test yesterday who can have an MI today. And this really comes down to the fundamental classic. I'm sure it's a little bit more um, developed uh, pathophysiologic model than when I studied it years ago. But the bottom line is, is somebody has a lesion in one of their coronary arteries, it ruptures acutely, it causes a plaque to, or it causes a clot to form, and that clot causes the patient to have acute symptoms, so either unstable angina or a full-on infarction where a part of the heart dies and the troponins start climbing. Okay. But if that initial underlying lesion is tiny and stable, the patient may have had a negative stress test recently because it doesn't cause any functional limitation. Or seven minutes of treadmilling doesn't bring it out. Does that make sense, Dimitri? Yeah, it does. You know, the, unfortunately, the stress tests sometimes do offer us, uh, you know, an unearned security, I would say. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point that you're making here. Yeah. So it's, it really, again, comes down to you as the clinician, as the highly trained physician sitting in front of your patients, looking at them going, I know you just had a normal stress test this week, but clearly your symptoms are concerning. And you need to be worked up. And I, I have no problem calling a cardiologist and discussing the case with him or her. I'll even do it in the middle of the night. I had a guy with, you know, again, bad story. And I was worried it was going to get lost in translation. I actually spoke to a poor cardiologist at four in the morning. But she agreed, was concerned. He got admitted. And he had a cabbage. This is people's lives. So don't be falsely reassured based on, quote, normal end quote, risk stratification techniques, because these techniques are highly limited. I just read you the sensitivities of them, right? They're somewhere between 45 and 90% sensitive. You're going to miss 5 in 10 or 1 in 10 cases of coronary artery disease. So that patient can easily walk into your clinic a week later, a month later, following a normal stress test and have real disease. And it should not be ignored. So take that history again. Take the physical exam again. And don't hesitate. Whether you work in the eMERGE or whether you work in you know, an outpatient clinic, don't hesitate to phone a cardiologist and ask for his or her opinion. They're highly trained. And unfortunately, some of them do still get hung up on, but they had a recent normal stress test. And I'm sure there's some data to suggest that these patients are very low risk, but Clearly, they were some baseline risk because they had the initial test to begin with, if that makes sense, right? Like out of all of your population, they weren't the 22-year-olds that were sent home and never tested. They were there. somebody, whether it was you or an ER doctor or cardiologist, somebody thought it was concerning enough and arranged for this patient to have a stress test. And then if they've represented to you with chest pain, it's still very possible that we're looking at underlying coronary artery disease. Any any thoughts, any reflections on that in your own practice, Dimitri? 
It's it's actually, I'm glad that you talked about the numbers. I know I don't like numbers as well, but when you put it that way, it you, missing one in 10 heart attacks, that that's not really acceptable. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah like missing one in 10 reason, cases yeah. of coronary artery disease, to be more specific or, or more correct, is, is a little scary. It kind of makes me feel like I wish we had better tests. But the problem with false positives as you start climbing up the sensitivity ladder and this is really the downsides with CTA and why it's not quite ready for prime time, but it's got a very high false positive rate to it. And this is leading to a lot of unnecessary interventions or angios and things. And again, angios are not benign or cheap to the healthcare system. And it really comes down to the astute clinician, right? And picking up the phone and speaking to a cardiologist if you're worried. Are you all right if I get to the summary? Yes, sure. I, I guess I'll just add w- one thing that... Yeah. Some family doctors have an advantage of uh, eMERGE docs is obviously you know your patient better. But the other thing that you often have access to is uh, you know their cholesterol risk stratification, right? Because if you if you calculate their risk scores, remember that if you're doing the Framingham, it's giving you an idea of what the risk is to have a heart attack in the, in the next ten years. So if you calculate the risk scores, they can help you a bit as well. Because if somebody coming in with a typical chest pain but they're high risk, like a 30% risk of a heart attack, um, that can give you a bit of more of a clue. Not always possible when you're an eMERGE doc, but as a family doc, you often have those risk scores written somewhere in their chart. No, and again, this really speaks to the importance of having a primary care provider and one that knows his or her patients very well. Because you're right, I write one word on my patient chart, lipids, uh, yes or no, right? But there's a lot of subtleties, or even just knowing the patient, right? Like, if your patient comes in like once a year and is never a complainer and goes, Oh, by the way, doctor, yeah, I have been getting chest pain when I've been shoveling, you know, concrete at work. And you start going, Ooh, you know, versus the one that's like in every single week with a somatic complaint. And you go, Yeah, I know what you're telling me, but you went for a stress test already this year. I think we can just watch this one. And again, that comes down to your excellent training and your excellent relationship with your patients in primary care. Okay, let's wrap this up. The bottom line here is a few key points. Number one, the word, the phrase stress test is a non-specific term and start to use the term cardiac risk stratification or at least be familiar with it. Know the contraindications to an exercise EKG, okay, particularly the, the treadmill component okay because if your patient can't do it physically then you should be sending them on to a clinic with capacity to do a stress echo or a midi your pretest probability so the likelihood that your patient actually has coronary artery disease plays a real role in how useful your test is going to be and patients who are low risk have high rates of false positives which is really quite useless and potentially harmful to your patients To add to that, stress tests are most useful in your patients with an intermediate risk profile. Not the obviously sick ones and not the obviously well ones. Okay, But unfortunately, this group, like our 45-year-old female, still has a high false positive rate and may need additional testing or observation. Know the limits of cardiac risk stratification. You just heard us rant on this. None of these has a sensitivity of 100%. They all have significant miss rates. 
And it comes down to you as the astute clinician being willing to pick up, being willing to pick up the phone and call, consult a cardiologist or an internist. Um, you know, if, if you're worried that the person is presenting again with symptoms of an acute event, whether it's angina or whether it's an acute coronary syndrome. Lastly, watch out, particularly in primary care, for your patients with unstable angina. Take a careful history. Don't just assume that the chest pain that comes after 15 minutes has been going on for weeks and weeks, months and months. Maybe it's just started in the last few days. So take a careful history because that can be the difference between having them wait two weeks and potentially having an MI while they're waiting to get referred to a cardiologist for a stress test versus sending them into the ER where they can be worked up and ideally done as an inpatient for their stress tests um, before going home. Any questions at all on that? No, I think I think that's a great summary, and uh, you know, I'm I'm glad that you talked about this. I'm certainly going to have to reevaluate some of those stress tests uh, in my patients. It's uh, it's quite eye opening. It's interesting, right? And again, this is something like I said, I try to revisit myself every few months, a couple times a year, just to sort of refresh myself. And it really knowing some of those numbers really helps you have an intelligent discussion with your cardiology colleagues. Because remember. Um, some of them may be taking call, but the cardiology is a very wide field, right? And some of them may be big in CHF or, uh, you know, uh, electrophysiology and things like that. And so it's up to us on the front lines to be able to advocate for our patients. And it's useful to have some evidence to back that up. Um, and, you know, my little rant on that is troponins do not exclude acute coronary syndrome. Negative troponins exclude NSTEMI and STEMI, but they do not exclude an unstable angina. And um, knowing that as a family doctor and emergency doctor is highly, highly useful. So with that said, I'm going to uh, wrap it up and I appreciate everybody's patience on this. And like I said, this was supposed to be a lot smaller than it was and it just kept growing, but I hope it was useful. Thank you so much, Kevin. Take care. 